So since I'm already up here, I've never done this before. Um, open your Bibles to the book of Third John. We're going to be looking at the small letter, Third John. It's actually the smallest letter in the whole Bible. But yet, just because it's a, just because it's the smallest letter, just the truth just jam packed into this letter. It's very worthwhile that we take time to get to know, to get acquainted with Third John. And the title of the sermon this morning, it's going to be on the screen, is going to be Truth Worth Working For. Truth Worth Working For. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, if you may please stand up with me as we read the Word of God with reverence, with respect, for it is God's Word. Awesome. Looks like everyone is there. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning as well. So this is what God's Word says to us this morning, church, through the words of the Apostle John in 3 John. He says, The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is going well. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to the fidelity to your truth how you're walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. Dear friend, you're acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they're strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they have set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words, and he is not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Dear friend, Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. This is God's word, church. Let's go go before him one more time in prayer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, again, just for the grace to meet on a Sunday morning, this day that you have made, to gather to fellowship, Lord, to sing songs of worship, praising you for what you have done through your Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the, through the gospel, Lord, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, and that he is risen today, Lord, and that, God, we have new life, and we're able to live for you. We just pray, Lord, I pray that, God, that this word, Lord, will just transform us, Lord, just to be more faithful when it comes to working for the sake of the gospel, Lord. And I just pray that the message will be clear. God, um, help me not to mess it up in any way, but Spirit, um, please um, allow my words just to pierce my brothers and sisters, Lord, so that, God, we just better know you, Lord, and that, God, we not only love you better, but, Lord, we live more in line of what your word has to tell us today. And if there's any unbelievers here, Lord, God, we don't know, but there's always the possibility. We pray for their salvation, and we just pray that the word this day will bring them into salvation, into the kingdom this day, all to your glory alone. And we lift up all these things in Jesus' name. We pray this as a church. Amen. Maybe seated. So we're gathered this morning, right, church, so that we may hear God speak to us from his word. For example, we just participated in a public reading of scripture, reading our text, 3 John, right? And I mention that because many of you, if not all of you, have access to a Bible, right? And if we're honest, we live in a time especially in a country where it is so easy to access the Bible, right? Whether it be a physical copy or on your mobile device, it's very easy. But how many of you ever asked yourself the question, how do we ever get our Bible in English? Because I can tell you, it wasn't inspired in English, right? It was inspired in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in the Greek, right? The original languages. But if that's the case, then it begs the question that someone put in the hard work of translating the Bible from these languages into English. And whether you know of the individual I am referring to, consider with me right now a story. The story regarding a particular outlaw set by God, the man named William Tyndale. 
Who is Tyndale? Tyndale was born in 1494 in Gloucester, England, and he would grow up to be really a brilliant biblical and language scholar in his day. And not only was he well-trained in languages, which it is said that he mastered about eight different tongues, but it was to the point that when native speakers heard him speak the tongues that he spoke, they thought they were from his own country, right? What a gift with languages. Hearing about that, I was like, man, that puts the shame to tears of Spanish. I barely remember from high school, right? Such training would really be pivotal and invaluable for Tyndale's life. But why? Because something more notable was taking place during this time in the 16th century, specifically in the Church of England. And, in, and it was the tragic reality that Christians in this day and time had virtually no access to the Word of God. Now, there were Bibles in those times, right? But they were only in Latin, and they can only be read and studied by the professionals, church leaders and scholars. But yet, even to expound upon that problem, many of the church leaders who taught from it had a hard time understanding it. So again, Tyndale lived in a time when there is virtually no access to the Bible. And that's very problematic, because if there's no clear access of the Bible, there's no clear access to the gospel, But if there's no clear access to the gospel, then there is no clear proclamation of the good news regarding the forgiveness of sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Tyndale was motivated to accomplish one goal in his life, to produce a Bible for the people. He wanted to translate from the original languages a Bible into English so readable and so accurate that any English person can not only read it right, but depend upon it. Learn from it and find God's voice in it. Yet, such a noble task, right, would be dangerous because in these days, those illegal, um, an act established by, you know, the English parliament and even verified by the king of England, King Henry VIII, you know, the one with all the wives, it was illegal to do this. And the punishment, if you were caught doing this, was death, particularly being burnt at the stake. But yet with Tyndale, he feared God more than man. For he was determined to translate the Bible into English for the sake of preserving the gospel. So eventually, he would become an outlaw, according to English law, and live in exile until he accomplished his monumental task to the glory of God, right? Unfortunately, though, he would eventually get caught. And through a series of trials, you know, by both corrupt government and church leaders, he was condemned as a heretic. And as a result, on March 6, 1536, outside Brussels, Belgium, William Tyndale was first strangled to death and then burnt at the stake. His crime? For simply translating the Bible into English. But yet, before leaving this present world through these temporal flames into everlasting glory, right, he was heard to pray these last words. He said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And by God's amazing providence, King Henry VIII's eyes would be opened only a couple years later and he would authorize the dispersion of Tyndale's Bible. So in the end, Tyndale's dream did come true. This outlaw, this father of the English Bible, was filled with the passion of giving the Bible to every English person in his day. And despite the threat of death, which he inevitably faced, right, he considered his work even worth dying for, again, to the glory of God alone. And all of us this morning are forever indebted to him for it. Therefore, I share this, loved ones, to help illustrate a very important point. Because everyone in this room, in some way, form, or another, is actually a worker when it comes to the gospel. But what do you mean by that, John? What are unbelievers here? What do you mean by that? Well, the key question is, is do you work for the advance of the gospel? Or do you work as a hindrance of the gospel? And this is not necessarily a situation between believers in the church and unbelievers of the world. But unfortunately, if we're honest, sometimes this is a reality within the church itself. Because of sin, various people may arise in the church to not only cause various division amongst God's people, but as they're doing that, actually working as a hindrance of advancing God's kingdom work. In other words, we can either be like individuals like Tyndale, who faithfully work to advance the gospel out of a selfless love for others and God. Or we can be so disillusioned by our selfish and sinful motives, like those who killed Tyndale, and actually become a hindrance to the advance of the gospel. So it's with all that in mind, loved ones, that we approach the letter of 3 John. The Apostle John was writing this letter amidst a situation at the end of the 1st century AD where he had faithful believers. They were working toward the advance of the gospel. And we're going to see 
individuals like that, like Gaius. But yet, simultaneously, there were also those in the church who were working against the furthering of the gospel. They were a hindrance of the gospel. Specifically, people like Diotrephes. And it was this situation then that the gospel was being limited in its advance. As a result, to solve this problem, to solve this dilemma, John writes the third letter of 3 John as a solution to remind the church to keep its head on mission of making disciples of all nations for the sake of the Great Commission. Therefore, the main point of 3 John, which is going to be the main point of my sermon this morning, loved ones, is that faithful believers then are fellow workers of the gospel. Faithful believers are fellow workers of the gospel. But what does it look like for a Christian to faithfully work amongst fellow believers for the advance of the gospel? What does that look like? And we're going to see with this question in mind that the Apostle John is going to present three marks. Three marks of what faithful believers look like as fellow workers of the gospel. So with all this in mind, let's jump right into our text where we are going to start looking at the first mark of this. And the first mark is the mark of walking in truth. The mark of walking in the truth. So look at your Bibles, beloved, at verse 1 of 3 John. And opens up in this way, saying, The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So with most letters in the New Testament, all of them, right? They follow a typical style um, that was typical in the first century A.D., Um, And it was organized into three parts. One, the greeting, the body, and the conclusion. Very simple. And so what we see in verse 1 is that it's the greeting of the letter. It's the introduction, I guess you could say. And again, as I said earlier, despite 3 John being the shortest book in the Bible, again, it's jam-packed, not only with content essential for Christian living, but with a historical context essential to understand John's message. And so in order to understand this background information, there's really one question we need to ask as we approach 3 John. Who's the elder, right? Who's the elder? Who is this referring to? And make a long story short, because there's a lot of debate. Every book in the Bible could be debated who wrote it, right? But to keep it simple for us today, the general consensus throughout church history, and even the New Testament itself, says that the elder here is none other than the Apostle John. But how can we know this? Well, the, the biggest hint is that there is a very close connection between the Gospel of John and the letters of John. And the connection has to deal with very close grammatical, literary, and content links between the two books. And since the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is the undoubted author of the Gospel of John, the most natural way to view who wrote the letters of John is the same John himself, right? A lot of Johns. But the same John wrote both things. So as a result... The elder in our text this morning is John, the apostle. And although it's unclear why he chose to refer himself in this way, why did he just call himself, you know, the apostle John? Or why, why does he say elder? He does the exact same thing in 2 John, but why does he do it? Well, in the Greek, this word for elder, it's a reference that John was actually a pastor. And as a pastor, although he was an apostle, it indicates that he had spiritual oversight over a series of churches, which would, which would have been historically Ephesus, that he was writing to when he was writing these three letters. And we see this especially with his warm affection, his pastoral heart. And we're going to see evidence of that as he's talking to Gaius, how he addresses him and how he approaches the situation within Third John. So as a result, the Apostle John, or John the Elder, he is the author of our letter this morning. But yeah, if you look again at verse 1, beloved, in your Bibles... We see who he wrote it to. He says, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And it's more difficult to say who exactly Gaius is. There's a few Gaiuses mentioned throughout the New Testament, but Gaius was a very common name in the first century. So it's virtually impossible to say, oh, this is the Gaius that's mentioned here. We just don't know, right? But what is clear is that as we go through 3 John, that Gaius was a golly example of what it looks like for a Christian to advance the gospel, to be faithful in doing that. And to begin with t- discussing about Gaius, John begins by calling him his dear friend. And really pay attention to that, because he wasn't just like his acquaintance, like, hey, how you doing, brother? No, he was his dear friend. And he calls him his beloved dear friend, and this simply captures again what I just said earlier, this warm affection that Gaius expresses, or that John expresses towards Gaius. And yet to further um, express 
John's pastoral affection towards Gaius, he says also, whom I love in the truth. And for John to say that he loves Gaius in the truth is to say that he loves him in a way consistent with the gospel. Because evidence of someone who has been transformed by the truth of the gospel is that they are walking in a new sense of love toward others, especially towards fellow believers in Christ. Why? Well, guys, we're church family, right? We've been brought, brought together by the blood of Jesus. It could even be said that our blood together is, is more thicker than family blood because of who bought us, Jesus, right? This is the love that John's communicating. He loves guys in the truth. It's consistent with the gospel, the reality that God has first loved us. Therefore, I love you in the same way. We will return to this, this idea a little later on in, in the letter. But in the meantime... How does John express that he loves guys? He says he loves them, but is there any way that he actually shows us in the letter? There is. And so take a look again at your Bibles, church, what he says in verse 2. He says again, Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is going well. So again, you know, John refers to guys as his dear friend, and this affection is then followed by a quick prayer. So when John prays for guys to be prospering in every way and are in good health, he is really showing a loving concern for his overall well-being physically. And to help us better understand why he's saying this, I want you to really look at the phrase whole life, right? Some other translations say it differently, such as soul. We'll get to there in a moment. But in the Greek, and I'm going to share the Greek word. It's necessary for us to understand what John is saying here. The Greek word here behind whole life or soul in some English translations is the word psuche. Psuche. And what psuche really captures is that it can either sometimes refer to the material aspect of someone, such as like their physical existence, or at times it can refer to the immaterial aspect of a person. And when we look closely at the context of verse 2, this latter meaning is true. This is why, like, the ESV would say soul to really capture this inward affection, this spiritual side to um, what John is saying. So what does this mean for us? Well, when John is praying for Gaius' overall well-being, particularly physically, it is in comparison to his spiritual well-being. Just as Gaius is healthy spiritually, John prays for him to be healthy physically as well. And we're going to see in the next verse, how did John knew Gaius was actually doing well spiritually? It wasn't just he was just saying it just to say it. No, he actually knew. He had evidence to really say, no, Gaius is doing well spiritually. But yeah, I just want this to sink in for a moment to help address our prayer lives as we consider others, right? Allow this to sink in for a moment that John was praying for Gaius, not just his spiritual well-being, but also his physical needs as well. Because as Christians, we should never be concerned with only one part of each other's well-being, but all of it, right? We, we love the whole being of our fellow brother or sister. And what, is, what a great way it is to love our fellow believers when we're praying concerning their entire being, their entire life. And I think to really help illustrate just how important this is, um, let's look at how Jesus patterns how we ought to pray through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew six nineteen to 13. This is what he says in these in these well-known words. He prays, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, right? So much to talk about here, but all I want us to really focus on is a part of Jesus' prayer and how he teaches his disciples to pray to God for daily bread. And this is really significant because our Father in Heaven knows our physical needs. He knows when we need to eat. He knows we need to sleep. He knows that we are weak physically, even spiritually. He knows when we all go through hard times, maybe financially, when life can grow burdensome with physical ailments, or just the daily anxieties of life could be so overwhelming. Of course, our greatest need is that our sins are forgiven, and they are for all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But yet, Jesus makes it clear that it's never wrong to necessarily pray for physical needs. Why? Well, because we're contingent upon God, right? For our existence. We depend upon our trying God for everything. And since every good gift and every perfect gift comes from Him, He is then gracious to us to give us what we need because He is our loving Father, especially when we 
humbly depend upon him through prayer. Therefore, as we pray this for our souls, right, because this is what Jesus tells us to pattern how we ought to pray, um, and, since we're call- and since we're called to love others as we love ourselves, let us pray for one another in the same way. And never allow your prayers to be something that you say, oh, I'll pray for you, brother, and you never do it later on. No, if anything, make it a habit to be quick to pray, which leads to a habit of continually praying, right? Because Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty six that he will judge us for all the careless words that we speak. And so in this way, loved ones, as John was praying for Gaius, loving him in this way, let's do at least this, that we love our fellow brothers and sisters by really praying for them regarding their whole life. And so it's with all these things in mind that, awesome, cool, John is praying for Gaius, but how did he actually know Gaius was doing well spiritually? Well, look at verse 3, church. This is what John says, and this is how he knew. For I was very glad. Why? When fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you're walking in truth. So the reason John knew guys was doing well spiritually is because other believers testified that he was walking in the truth. And this happened when, of course, these fellow believers, at some point in time, we don't know, came to John and told him about these things. We will learn more about the identity of these fellow believers when we get to verse 5. But what is significant to note here now is that they testified to Gaius' fidelity to the truth. And if that is a little ambiguous, this phrase is further clarified when John says how you were walking in the truth. How was, what does it mean that Gaius had fidelity to the truth? Well, he was walking in the truth. And this right here, loved ones, this, is, this captures a very important truth. Because as John mentioned earlier in verse 1, Truth itself, which is, which is the same throughout this letter, it captures, again, facts consistent with the gospel. And to really help further illustrate this idea of truth here, I want us to consider just one verse. It's a very well-known verse, but it really helps us to better understand John's point. Is what Jesus says himself in John 14.6. A lot of you probably have it memorized. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As the God-man then, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, there's only one way to salvation. Why? Because he is the only one that we can receive forgiveness of our sins against our holy God in heaven. He is the only being that has done something about our sin problem. And so as the truth, he is the standard of what is right and wrong, what is reality and what is not reality. Why? Well, because he is truth in himself. And all that to say, he is life. Because he offers to salvation to all who repent of their sins and believe in him in faith as Lord and Savior. If you do that, you inherit eternal life, right, loved ones? No longer are we enslaved to sin and held bondage to our shame of it. Because Jesus, as Isaiah the prophet says, was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. Not on us, on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Or as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, he made the one, as God made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus, the man of sorrows, was on that cross, loved ones, we can never forget this precious reality of the gospel. He bore the full wrath of God as the sinless God, or as the sinless Son of God. For who? For all those who call upon his name in faith. Why? Because of his great love for you. How? By grace through Christ alone. As a result, those who have been set free from the bondage of death, you know, we no longer live for sin, but we now live for the risen King Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we who live for Christ have then been restored back to God, something that was lost due to sin, but now regained in Christ. Indeed, as believers, we can really sing and just praise God for what John says in 1 John 5.20, which he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given understanding so that we know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. This is what it means when fellow believers testify to John regarding Gaius' fidelity to the truth. It was not because he merely verbally confessed the truths of this gospel, as we just heard in succinctly just a moment ago, 
But he was practically living a life transformed by the truth of the gospel. He wasn't just talking about sock doctrine, as, as fun as it is, right? But he was actually walking in sound doctrine. And this picture of walking then is actually a perfect illustration. Because when we look at this verb for walking in 3 John 3, in the Greek it, can, it, it, it conveys a continuous action, something that we continually do. It indicates that Gaius was continuously living out the truths of the gospel. And we will see shortly what particularly Gaius was doing and how he was walking in the truth. But the point for us is that as Christians, we are never just merely characterized by a, by a confession of faith alone. Just because, and really hear me out, just because we confess to a particular confession, maybe it be a creed or maybe a statement of faith, which we, all of us as members at Sovereign Way, do prior to becoming members here, that does not necessarily mean that you are a born-again Christian. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we are never to confess sound doctrine. That's actually really important to not only understand God, but to really worship him in spirit and truth. But yet, the point I'm trying to, to, to point out, which is what Third John indicates, is that you're not primarily known by what you confess alone. Why? Because Jesus says you're known by how the way you live. Consider what he says in Luke 6, 43 to 45. He says this here. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes and grapes picked up from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. And the picture here that Jesus is illustrating is very clear, right? A good tree, it doesn't produce bad fruit. Likewise, a bad tree is not going to produce good fruit, right? It's just how, how naturally it works that way. But similarly, to paint a broader picture, a person who has received a new heart through the gospel is not marked by the continual habit of sin anymore. They're born again. This doesn't mean sinless perfection. That won't happen until we're glorified, right? In the new heaven, new heaven and the new earth with Jesus. But yet, the believer is now marked by no longer walking in sin because they are walking in truth by producing good fruits. On the other hand, however, the one whose heart is still dead to sin is not marked by good fruit. It's impossible. They are spiritually dead. They need to be born again. And until they experience, you know, the sweet grace of salvation through the Savior and receive a regenerated heart from the Spirit, they will forever be ruined by sin. In other words, the fruit a person produces is indicative whether their heart or not has been transformed by the gospel. This is why Gaius' fidelity to the truth was known to others, because he was living a life filled with others in such a way that others were able to see it and authenticate like, hey, his faith in Jesus, it's real. It's true. This is why it's so important that we practice what we believe, loved ones. For if we truly believe the things we confess, then we should walk in a manner in accordance to it. This is why it is very dangerous then that when some Christians merely confess to believe in Jesus as Savior, but their life is not necessarily marked by walking unto him as Lord, it's very dangerous ground. Because if we live our lives not in complete submission to a sovereign lordship, if we don't live as if he is king, but we live as if we are king ourselves, we can do whatever we want, but grace abounds, right? Taking it for granted. I don't care what you believe. The scripture is very clear that you're most likely not born again. Consider what 1 John 3, 4-6 says. John says, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins. And there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. If your life is characterized by a continuous habit of living in sin, to the point to like, eh, it's not that big of a deal, I don't really want to cut it off completely, immediately, then this shows that you are not walking in the truth. Because true believers, who will still nonetheless struggle with sin, right, 
They will at least be so bothered by it that they will continually, with all their effort, be killing sin in order to walk in the newness of life that is only found in Jesus. I don't know where all of us are at this morning. No, we're all in different maturity levels, believers. You know, there might be some unbelievers here. But wherever you are, loved ones, wherever you are at church, take heart. For as one Puritan writer would say, there is, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Only when you embrace the Savior will you truly experience joy in Him forevermore. As a result, upon hearing guys' continual walking in the truth, John says in 3 John 4, he, he can only explain what he can only feel, right? He says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. Again, we see just John's warm affection towards guys when he calls him his own child. Why? Because he is walking in the truth. And whether or not this meant Gaius was saved under John's ministry, it does point to the reality that you just have a pastor rejoicing upon hearing that one of his sheep is walking in the truth. And John is right to feel this way. For it is evidence, actually, that God is faithful, that he's faithfully working in Gaius. Therefore, we got to be like John, right? We ought to praise God and rejoice, loved ones, when we see our fellow brothers and sisters growing in Christ-likeness. Why? Because again, when we're witnessing the sanctification of another believer, as we're seeing God grow them in the word, as we see God helping them become more like Jesus, we're witnessing an example of God's faithfulness in that believer, in that believer's salvation, and how they're becoming more like Jesus. So with all this in mind, loved ones, is your life marked by walking in the truth? Are you known for living a life worthy of the gospel by serving God and others first? Or are you known for not walking in the truth? Are you known for living a life not worthy of the gospel by serving yourself first before others and God? If not, then ask God to help you to see where you need to grow. Fill your heart with God's word so that you may filter out the world and fill it with Christ. Surround yourself with the people, people of God that you can trust at church who are more than willing to help you walk alongside as you guys walk together, living a life worthy of the gospel. Because, beloved, I pray that as we just do all these things together, because we cannot never do it alone, as we just keep these things in mind, beloved, it's my prayer at least that by seeing just how guys, or at least how he was explained to be walking in the truth, we'll see the detail later that it is essential that we as believers, we got to be walking in the truth. Because if not, then how can we ever say that we have been saved by the truth of the gospel? This then leads us to perhaps the one greatest expression of what walking in the truth looks like as we look at the next mark. So the first one was the mark of walking in the truth. The second, the mark of hospitable love. The mark of hospitable love. So look at your Bibles, loved ones, at 3 John 5. John begins to open the body of his letter saying this, Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. So as we approach again the body of 3 John, we see guys again address guys, or John address guys as his dear friend. And this is appropriate again because he is going to encourage them on how he has been walking in the truth. How was he walking in the truth? Look again at verse 5. You, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. And I will explain shortly what Gaius was doing exactly with these fellow brothers and sisters, but whatever it was, he was acting in a way defined by faithfulness. And what this means is that it was not just he was just doing it continually, you know, going through the motions type of thing, but he was doing it continually with a sense of loyalty. That's what the Greek is indicating here. And this is clear because God did so especially when they were strangers. But, then we get, but you're probably thinking about the question, well, what does it mean that these fellow believers were strangers? Why does John call them strangers? Well, we actually find some clarity in the next verse. So look at what John says there in verse 6 about these believers. He says, They have testified to your love, talking to Gaius, before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So there's a few things to keep in mind here. 
First, these believers, I'll call them strange believers until I reveal what they are, they are the same ones who testified that guys was walking in the truth early in verse 3. And it is not until here in verse 6 that we now see why they said this. For he showed them love, and therefore these believers, they announced it to the church. But which church still, right? Well, got to remember, there, you know, there wasn't just one church, or there was like many various churches in the ancient times. Um, usually when you say there was like a church in Ephesus or in a church of Laodicea, all the community of churches there, they all made up the one church, but there was various house churches, right? That's kind of how the church was organized in that day as the church was starting off. And when these believers then were sent where John was staying, or when they say they, they confessed to John um, about Gaius' love, it indicates that John and Gaius, they were at two different churches. Why? Well, look at the language very closely. Since they experienced Gaius' love, they then went to go tell John about it, right? So again, where it seems that John is at one church, right? Guys is at another. The these believers that were at that were at Guys' church, oh man, guys loved us. They went then to go tell John what happened at another church, which both, of course, would have been under John's pastoral leadership. Now all this points to what John is saying really in the second clause of verse six. He says this You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And I want us to look closely at this language here, loved ones. When he says this, what do you think he's referring to? And this is referring to the identity of these strange believers. Look at the word to send them on their journey, that phrase, right? It's actually a verb. It's actually a technical term in the Greek, particularly in the early church, for missionary support. This language is actually seen throughout the book of Acts, and a perfect example of this, of missionary support, is when the Apostle Paul is asking the Roman church to send him for missions in Spain. This is what he says in Romans 15.24. He says, Whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through, and to be assisted by you, that's the verb there, once I have enjoyed your company there for a while, we see here that he wants to be assisted by the Roman church. Therefore, we now finally understand that Gaius was walking in the truth because he received not these Christians who were once strangers, but they were actually really Christian missionaries. This is why John says in verse 6, you do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God because he trusts them to support them financially because he has received them once. Now for the sake of the kingdom, for the advance of the gospel, John is entrusting Gaius that he will send these missionaries by holding the rope financially, you know, if they do return to him in the near future, all done in a manner worthy of God. But then does beg the question, because there's a concept here that may not be clear initially, it's about hospitality. Because when these Christian missionaries were testifying about Gaius' love to John, they were actually sharing about how Gaius was so hospitable to, to these missionaries. But how? How is he doing this? Well, in the Mediterranean world in the first century, which is the context where the New Testament finds itself in, hospitality, it was really a process. The process of where an outsider status was changed from a stranger to a guest. Hospitality was not just something a person provided for family or friends, but really to strangers, outsiders, right? People not a part of that community. And the reason why that was so necessary in this time period, because you had many people traveling, and there wasn't a lot of inns, and they usually depended upon people to show them hospitality, who would show them mercy and provide for their physical well-being, such as with shelter, food, water, sleeping quarters, even telling them directions to, to their journey onward. If a traveler didn't receive that hospitality, then they could either be left fatally destitute because they had no idea where they were, or they were forced back to return home. Those are not two very good results of hospitality, right? Horrible. So when guys received these missionaries, they were initially strangers because they were outsiders, right? Again, that's why we say they maybe came from John's church that came to visit guys. And what a guys did, he showed them hospitality, which is really an expression of love. And not only did he accept them just as mere guests, like, oh, I guess I have to do it. But no, he accepted them because really they were beloved believers in Christ. Not only is Gaius truly showing love for neighbor then, but he's truly loving his fellow Christian. It is Gaius' 
hospital, 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 love. I'm not going to say that word. It, it is Gaius' love that was allowing the work of the gospel to advance forward. And that's incredible because as Christians, we ought to show loving hospitality, especially toward fellow believers who are on mission for the Great Commission. But you might be asking yourself, well, John, why, do, why does Gaius need to support missionaries? Why should I support missionaries, right? Well, John actually gives us some reasons in verses 7 to 8. So look at your Bibles really quick, beloved. In verse 7, for start, to start off with, John says to Gaius that he ought to support these missionaries, one, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. The first reason, then, is that these missionaries, they set out on their journey, their missionary journey, for the sake of the name. And the verb here, setting out, is again, is a technical missional term by nature. And what it captures here is that these missionaries, they're being sent by ascending church. And that's the pattern we see in the book of Acts, and that's important because churches sent missionaries, never self-appointed missionaries, right? But what is most intriguing in this, in this first clause is that what's the motivation behind these missionaries for even going in the first place? For the sake of the name. For the sake of the name. But what name? And the CSB is capitalized, so it's pretty obvious. But what name? The only name under heaven that, is, that, that not only saves, but is worthy to serve. Jesus Christ. And this is profound. Because the only reason these missionaries were going out for the advance of the gospel was for the sake of Jesus' name alone. In other words... They were so concerned with God's glory that they could not stand anyone perishing any longer without knowing Jesus or living a life any longer without knowing him. And since they were so concerned with the, with the belittlement of God's name that they were motivated to make his name known among the nations. As the Apostle Paul says this of himself in Romans 1.5, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name among all the Gentiles. For Paul, he received the grace of apostleship so that he can share the good news with the Gentiles. And if you don't know what a Gentile is, just non-Jew, right? The nations, in order to be saved, all for the sake of the name, to God's glory alone. And I can tell you that every faithful missionary that I have ever met, and maybe some of you that have met as well, in some way, shape, or form, their desire for going to the nations is to really make the name of Christ known to the nations. But yeah, that's only the first reason, right? The second reason John encourages guys to support these missionaries is that they did not receive anything from pagans. But what does that refer to? Some English translations, like the ESV, will use Gentiles. But what the word pagan is really expressing is that these missionaries did not accept support, not merely from Gentiles, right? Because there was Gentile believers what the word pagan is expressing is particularly they did not want to receive support from Gentile unbelievers. In other words, they, just, they didn't want to receive any support from unbelievers. And this is because in that time, they did not want unbelievers to assume that they were like their traveling teachers who were greedy for money, who were, who were greedy at the expense of other people, right? No, they didn't want to reproach the name of Christ in that way. Grace was free, right? Christ came. You know, They didn't want to charge people with his message. So to avoid that confusion, to be above reproach, they didn't want to accept support from unbelievers. Now, I would say, it doesn't mean that these missionaries, nor any missionaries could, today, could never receive any help from a pagan unbeliever, especially if, they're, especially if they're willing to help. Instead, we have to understand, what was their motivation for saying this? What was the policy? Their policy was that, that they would not purposely themselves seek out the support from unbelievers. They would seek out the support from believing churches. And as a result, they did not receive any help from unbelievers to accept, all right? So that helps. But yet, because why? Because God expects that missionaries are supported not by the world, but by the church. By the church. That's why John mentions the second reason, which then leads us to the final reason. John encourages guys to support these missionaries. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles, loved ones. John says, therefore, we ought to support such people so that we could be co-workers with the truth. So the final reason then 
of why God is to support these missionaries is that when he would do so, he's actually a fellow worker of the gospel. He's a fellow worker of the truth. And I'm not sure if you have realized it or not, but we have a phrase that we like to see here at Sovereign Way. Now, we've got to be senders and goers, right? You know, the senders are ones that, you know, hold the line financially for missionaries to go. You know, that's what we give to Lottie Moon. And the goers are those who go to the nations, right? That concept, we just read it right now. That If you ever wondered where that was in Scripture, it is here in 3 John 6-8. to And because of that, I share that because... Not everyone is meant to go to the nations. Not everyone is called to be a missionary, and that's okay. But what everyone is called to be is a world Christian. A Christian by in some way, shape, or form, working, supporting, being a fellow worker of God's missionary work to the nations. Therefore, whether you go as a missionary, like the ones who were sent out for the sake of the name, or maybe even if you support missionaries financially like Gaius, we all have our part to play. And when we each play our part, which we need both, we are thus serving as fellow co-workers of the truth by helping together advance the gospel. As a result, loved ones, we have an obligation, again, to play our part in missions. Because if you think about it, this is really the only reason why the church is here, to make disciples of the nations. As Jesus says in the Great Commission passage of Matthew 28, 18-20, He says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always until the end of the age. As Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations, we were to baptize them in the one name of our triune God and teach them the truths of God's word, right? And although such a task seems impossible by mere human effort, Jesus says, no, I am with you forever till the very end of the age. So just as John encourages Gaius to support these missionaries, we are called to support missions as well. And not only are some called, maybe some in this very room are called to go, but everyone else at least is called to support those who do go. We are called for the sake of the name, and it is by his name that we either go or support those who go. Because it is his name that is worthy. It's worthy. Jesus' name is worthy to be declared because it is the only name under heaven that can bring ruined sinners to experience the redemption of a great God and Savior. Jesus. Why? So that they could be regenerated by the Spirit and have new life in him. Loved ones, let us serve our God for the sake of his name and get God's mission done. According to the International Missions Board, I'm going to give you some statistics just to help make the reality all the more heavier. This is an updated one this year. The International Missions Board, which is the missionary agency our church is connected to via our denomination, they estimated that 59% of the world today is considered unreached. That means that Jesus is not known or named among about 4.5 billion people in the world today. And to make that reality even more heavier is that there's about 157, 690 people dying every day without Christ. That is daily. People are dying without knowing Jesus. Allow those numbers to sink in for a moment. There's still work to be done. So loved ones, for the sake of the name, let us be faithful as Gaius was, to work towards the advance of the gospel. Whether we're senders or whether we're goers, let us be faithful to make Christ's name known on this earth. Let us preach and let us live a life worthy of the gospel daily. Because I know, at least I know, we all know lost people. We know lost family members. We have lost co-workers. We have lost friends. At least start by loving them, by telling them about Christ. There might be the possibility that there may be some lost people here. Or maybe they're listening to this, right? Either now or, or if they may stumble across in the future. I just want to tell you that I love you so much that your greatest need is to be born again. And that is only possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we have experienced as believers, but for those who have not, the fountain of living water rests right before you. The good news of Jesus. Do not deny it. Do not deny Jesus any longer so that you can keep living in your sin because this sin will only keep you entrapped eternally forever in hell for.
forever. And I don't want that. We don't want that for you as a church. And so, repent of your sins. Believe in Christ. Drink upon the living water of Jesus, and your spiritual thirst will be quenched. Because only when you rest in the Savior will you experience true joy in Him. So, loved ones, again, with all this in mind, only when the gospel has been preached to the nations will Jesus return in glory. He will return to destroy evil once and for all, and he will restore this fallen world into the paradise that it once was. Beloved, let us stop living for this world. Let us stop being distracted by it. It's fading away. It's not going to be here forever. Let us live for the world to come as ambassadors of the kingdom to come. Walk in the truth by lovingly showing hospitality toward other believers, especially in support for those who go in the name of Jesus. However, before we turn to the final mark of what believers look like as fellow workers of the gospel, there's a person we need to meet. And it's important that we meet this person so that we avoid the danger of becoming a true hindrance of the gospel ourselves. Now enter Diotrephes. Look at your Bibles, loved ones, in verse 9. This is what John says. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. We have seen so far, right, in verses 1 to 8, how guys is walking in the truth by showing hospitable love toward fellow missionaries. But here we see a turn of events. We are about to witness someone a little more ominous, a man named Diotrephes. There is very little that we know about Diotrephes apart from 3 John. In the first century, he actually had a very unusual name. Granted, I think he still has an unusual name today in the 21st century. But his name means nurtured by Zeus. And what do I share that? Well, it may be that this name was connected to nobility. In other words, Diotrephes, his name bled with privilege. But whether or not this explains Diotrephes' attitude in verses 9 to 10, as we're about to see, his example is not something we want to follow, loved ones. Why? Well, what does John mention at the beginning of verse 9? He says he wrote something, which is a letter, but it's lost to antiquity, so we don't know what it is. But he wrote something, right, to Diotrephes' church. But yet, what was his response? He rejected it. Which further explains why he says that he does not receive our authority. And when Diotrephes does not receive our authority, what that is indicating is that when Diotrephes rejected the letter, he was actually rejecting John's God-given authority as an apostle. Alongside all the co-workers who are working alongside John, like Gaius and the missionaries who are working to advance the gospel. And John illustrates Diotrephes, like, what's his motivation? Why is Diotrephes being a punk? Well, he's the type of person who loves to have first place among them. And this phrase, you know, loves to be first, it captures the idea of someone who loves to be first in the sense of rank or position. In other words, Diotrephes loves power. He's power hungry. He's on a power trip. He has no respect for the authority of others because ultimately, who does he love? Himself more than others. And this all bleeds into what John further says about Diotrephes in verse 10. Look at what he says here. This is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words, and he is not even satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Since Diotrephes has rejected John's authority, Whatever the reason was, right? He's power hungry, doesn't want, doesn't want to listen to John, wants to do his own thing. John has no other choice but to pay him a visit to confront him of all the evil works he is doing. And, you know, the language is clear. You know, John doesn't know when he's going to visit. That's why he says, if I come. But yet again, he needs to make this visit, right? Because Diotrephes is, is, he is not doing good. He's doing a lot of evil things. But yet, what are they, though? What are they specifically? Well, John helps us again by listing four things in verse 10 of what Diotrephes was doing. He says he was slandering us with malicious words. He's not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. So first then, he is slandering with malicious words, evil words, right? John and those like Gaius and these missionaries who were faithfully working to advance the gospel. 
And the idea of slandering here is speaking nonsense. Diotrephes was speaking nonsense about John and those who are working to advance the gospel, speaking lies. And when combined with the idea of malicious, evil words, you could say Diotrephes was bad-mouthing you know, those who are faithful to advance the gospel. In other words, Diotrephes was the original discernment blogger. And who knows what he would have done if he had Twitter, right? And if that wasn't bad enough, as John says, he was not satisfied with using his tongue to belittle fellow believers. How horrible. He says, secondly, that he was refusing to welcome fellow believers. And look at that contrast. Where Gaius, he received these Christian missionaries with a love of hospitality. What does Diotrephes do? He doesn't welcome them. He rejects to show them hospitality. Instead of showing them love, he's actually showing his hatred towards them, his detestation of them. And if that was not even the end of it, it gets worse. When John says at the end of verse 10 that he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. So not only does Diotrephes refuse to receive these fellow missionaries, but he even stops those who try to do so in his congregation, right? And even expels them from the church. And it's not clear if this was an, an official act of excommunication or not. That would be crazy, right? But the fact that Diotrephes was, was able to pull it off demonstrates that he not only possessed a lot of authority, perhaps he was the, the main leader of the church, but that he was abusing it to the point that he was just leading negatively maybe other believers to be influenced and follow his act as well. Horrible. Nonetheless, it's clear then that Diotrephes, he is a true hindrance of the gospel. Instead of loving those who are going out for the sake of the name, God's name, Diotrephes shows hatred towards them by loving himself. Instead of exalting the one name that deserves to be glorified alone, he's only concerned with glorifying his own name. So with all this in mind, we've seen two opposing characters, right? You got Gaius, who is defined by love for others. But Diotrephes, he's defined by love for himself. Where the former puts others first, the latter puts himself first. Where the god of ill repute works for the advance of the gospel, this man of ill repute works as a hindrance of the gospel. And yet, the danger for us, church, to be like Diotrephes ourselves that possibility is a lot more closer than I think we would like to admit ourselves. Why? Because there's always a possibility that we could sin, right? Just like geographies. And although believers are, are redeemed from the power of sin, we have not been truly set free from the ability to never sin. That's not going to come until Christ makes all things new, right? That's why it's so important that we renew our mind daily through God's word so our heart matches with Christ's heart, and not that of the world. This is why we pray daily, so that we are reminded of our dependence upon our sovereign Lord and don't depend upon ourselves. Now, I'm not sure if, if all of you know this, but it's just a horrible reality that, you know, as a church in our own country, especially when we consider our own denomination as Southern Baptists, if you were to ask the world, what's, what's the one defining mark that we're known as Christians? It's not love. It's for fighting with one another. And as Pastor Steve, you know, you know was, was explaining through his recent sermons in Romans 14, it's, it's really pity stuff, right? It's stupid. It's, it's, it's like, why? And this is horrible. Especially because what, what our Lord commands us in John 13, 34 to 35. He says this, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this and this things, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Loved ones, let your life be defined by Christ-like love. How can we say that we've experienced God's love or that we love God if we act in a way that is actually hating our fellow brother and sister when we argue with them about dumb stuff? How can the world take our message seriously if the one thing that ought to mark us as Christians is missing? Because until we are defined by our love for one another, our witness to the world will be as empty as if we say, I love you, brother, but with your actions, it doesn't mean that way. Until we, with all of our effort, begin to love one another as Christ loved us, and how did he love us? He died for us? We will still think more about ourselves rather than others first. And that's really the heart of why we see so much fighting amongst God's people, because we love ourselves first rather than others first. 
We see that today. We see that theotrophies. And it will be that way, church, until we learn to love others first. I read a little biography earlier this week by a guy named Ian Murray, and it was on a fellow sister named Amy Carmichael. I'm not sure if you ever heard of Amy Carmichael. I recommend this biography to anyone. It's very short. It's powerful. But she was a missionary and an influential writer who served 51 years, 51 consecutive years on the mission field in India. And where such service seems almost insurmountable, like, dang, that's a long time. Her strength, though, this is what I found interesting, and this is applicable for us, her strength fueling her life for faithful, godly service is God's love. Because the more we know God's love to us through Christ, that's when we actually begin to think less of ourselves and think others first. This is what Carmichael says. Amy Carmichael says herself in, her bio- in this biography regarding the importance of abiding in God's love. She says, If love weakens among us, if it ever becomes possible to tolerate the least shadow of an unloving thought, our fellowship will perish. Unlove is deadly. It is a cancer. It may kill slowly, but it always kills in the end. If unlove is discovered anywhere, stop everything and put it right, if possible, at once. If there's anyone here who is estranged with one another, especially for brothers and sisters or anyone, maybe due to a sense of argument or whatever, make it right. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's name, how he has first loved us, right? Make it right by lovingly seeking each other's forgiveness. Or, if your life has been marked by unlove, repent of it now in your hearts so that God's love can consume you. Because unless we allow ourselves to be consumed by God's love, we will never truly love others. And this then leads us, church, to consider briefly the last mark of what faithful believers look like as fellow workers of the gospel. And this is the mark of godly obedience. The mark of godly obedience. So we have seen the mark of walking in the truth and the mark of hospitable love. All this is really important then that we walk in obedience in light of it, right? So look at your Bibles, beloved. Verse 11, this is what John says. Again, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So we see John refers to Gaius for the last time as his dear friend. But we arrive at the peak of the letter because it is in this passage that we see the one primary command in the letter, right? So we've talked about a lot of theology, a lot of true things. Now it's time to apply it. And what does he say? Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Why? Well, the text answers that ourselves because the one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. In other words, John is saying to guys, do not imitate that evil diatrophies. Instead, continue to do what is good. And this is why he adds, at first it might seem random, but this is why he adds in verse 12, everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. And so John kind of inserts Demetrius, kind of, it seemed like, you know, last second, but he inserts him nonetheless because he was an example of someone who was doing good. How do we know this? Well, all the Christians that knew him, the truth of the gospel itself because he was living in light of it, and John and his fellow workers were all testifying that he was doing good. And John may have mentioned then Demetrius here because not only was he maybe the likely letter or the likely carrier of this letter, but that he was a fellow missionary as well. And so with that in mind, Diotrephes, who was characterized by a lack of love towards Christian missionaries, John is calling guys. He is reminding him to not imitate this bad example, but to keep doing what is good, to keep showing hospitable love, especially missionaries, to believers like Demetrius. Because anyone who continually does evil, they are of God. Or sorry, if anyone continually does good, they are of God, right? They're born again. But yet, if someone continually has a habitual um, you know, life of doing evil, they don't care, it's an inclination that they have not seen God, particularly with the eyes of faith. They're still an unbeliever. So therefore, loved ones, allow us to be careful who we imitate. And I'm really thinking about maybe some of the students this morning. Because I know we all look up to people, right? Whether it be students or grown-ups. Maybe someone in pop culture, sports, 
friend, you know, got a favorite teacher, maybe a favorite politician, co-workers, family, you name it. Those who we look up to tend to be the ones who maybe influence us a little too much and shape the way we live. So I say that because be careful to not follow the evil examples of this world. Instead, look up to those who follow Christ. And as far as they imitate Christ, imitate them. Because for all of us, church, we are called to imitate Jesus in holiness. As scripture says, as he is holy, as God is holy, as he is perfect, we are called to be like him in holiness. And so allow us to have our lives marked by walking in the truth, accompanied by Christ-like love, for it will lead us to obey our Lord in love. And now, got the rest of the conclusion. Um, it's really hard to preach through conclusions like this, but I think we can at least read it one more time because it's a perfect picture of the unity that John and Gaius share together. We've seen evidence of that, right, through the letter, but it paints just, you know, faithful believers who are also fellow workers working towards the advance of the gospel. Just to see the fellowship here. This is what John says at the, at the conclusion, verses 13 to 15. He says, I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. Shalom that we have in Jesus, right? The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. So my friends, my church family, loved ones, we've just reviewed the Apostle John's third letter on how faithful believers are fellow workers of the gospel. And although gospel ministry is never easy, if, if anything, it's probably really hard most of the time, right? Um, especially when we're working alongside other fellow brothers and sisters. But yet, as long as we keep these three marks in mind, right? What, what makes faithful believers look like, or what do they look like as fellow workers of the gospel? It's walking in the truth. It's by demonstrating hospitable love. It's by being obedient and, and, and imitating God in holiness. If we keep these things in mind, and as long as that we're also faithful with what God has given us, as what he has entrusted us with our gifts, serve God, especially when it comes to the Great Commission, you will do well. You will be well. Whether you go to the nations to preach the gospel or stay behind to support missions, we both need each other. We need to support one another and use our gifts to serve one another so that we may advance, advance the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there will always be people like Diotrephes, right? But yet, there's a lot more guises as well. And regardless of where you may find yourself working for the, for the gospel, be faithful in what you do for the sake of the gospel. We still have much work to do, right? But be faithful with where the Lord has you now. Depend upon him through prayer and selflessly serve and love one another. Because when we start doing that, church, the world will actually begin to see us for, for how they ought to see us, for our love for one another. Let's go before our Lord in prayer, church.